they know that I'm not leaving them much of anything. Because Kate and I felt, on a much smaller scale, obviously, than the Warren Buffetts of the world, um, that we wanted to give 90% of um, what God has blessed us with away uh, in our lifetime. Welcome to Beyond High Street. My name is Jenny Derrick, and I'm the Dean of the Pharma School of Business here at Miami University. Today, I am joined by John Altman, who graduated with a Bachelor's of Arts in Economics back in 1960, no comment, and also has an honorary doctorate in letters uh, from Miami that was awarded to John in 1990. So welcome, John, to Beyond High Street. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> you don't know what I'm going to ask you yet. <laughs> you might regret that statement. So, so not only is John a, a, an alum of our program, but he's also uh, on my board of visitors as an Emiratus member. He has been an adjunct professor for a long time at Miami University, uh, was also on our board of trustees as a national trustee and chaired the investment, uh, sorry, chaired the audit and finance committee, and was on the investment committee. And also for those listeners who've made the connection, our John W. Altman Institute for Entrepreneurship is named after John Altman. So there's a long, this could be a long interview, John. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking forward to it, Jenny. And I do want to point out that I did hold the Richard A. Forsyth professorship and had those wonderful years as a full-time faculty member. And also, we, you did hold the Markley uh, professorship as well. Yeah, that, that's that's where the whole thing started, Jenny. As you know, uh, the, the, the story, I'll try to make it as short as possible, but uh, I'd sold the company and uh, retired to play golf the rest of my life. My handicap got worse as I played more and of course, one of your great predecessors and my dear friend, now long gone, uh, Dean Robeson called and uh, he uh, said, why don't you come out here and help me in Oxford? He said, I know you sold the company. And I said, yeah, I'm, I'm bored to death playing golf. So come out and help me. I said, Jim, half the faculty will, will quit in the first 30 days. He said, oh no. He said, I don't want you to administrate a job. I want you to teach. And I said, Jim, the only thing I've ever taught was second year ancient Greek in seminary. And he said, well, I want you to teach the same thing here, but we're going to call it entrepreneurship. So that's how the journey began when I returned to Oxford after all those well, years. I, did, I didn't realize that Greek became entrepreneurship. That's a new piece of data that I wasn't aware of, John. But so, so, but what's interesting to me is, is when you joined Miami to teach entrepreneurship, universities weren't that good at offering programs in entrepreneurship. And I, I, I remember when I set up a program back in New Zealand, my home country, we had yeah. a lot of criticism of it that entrepreneurship didn't belong in a university. So talk to me about that. And, and to, for well, me, this seems like a really innovative thing that Miami was willing to do. It, it was. Uh, and, and frankly, Jim took a lot of risks. I mean, my God, my terminal degree, if you will, was in divinity or in theology. And um, uh, I had not taught before other than what I said. And, and then there was entrepreneurship. And I need to tell you that, that certain members of the faculty were openly hostile to it. And looking back on it, my style could have been a little different. Um, if I had done the research on the contribution that entrepreneurs were making to the American economy, which I finally did in year two, if I had done that right from the get-go, 
I think I would have had a, a warmer reception in the management department than I did. But it all turned out, I, I think, very well. I had a couple of distinct advantages um, over another Markley type of professorship is one, I'd been at the business school at Harvard and I saw what great case teaching looked like. And then secondly, um, it, with, with my job at the Kaufman Foundation, I was, um, I was exposed to Babson and their teaching. And as you know, after Miami actually joined the faculty there, but in the interim, they had a program where you took a practitioner and a, a PhD professor, and you went out there for, I think it was three weeks, and, um, and th they looked at the core concepts of entrepreneurship that not only were worth teaching, but could be taught. So I had a bit of a leg up there. So I was able from the very beginning to design the, the, the program in a way that practitioners, I hope, will always be a very, very important part of the academy. And as you know, th that's a stretch for some faculty members. So I want to just redirect a little bit. And, and when I reminded myself that you actually started up eight businesses, I don't know how you got into polymers. I'd like to know about polymers. And as, as you tell your story about the startups you founded, also weave in why you were fired five times <laughs> in your career. Yeah, I, I just didn't do well in, in, in big companies. Um, first of all, I would look at them and, and say, why are they... Why are they selling the products the way they are? Uh, it was generally marketing problems. I mean, the companies I worked for had great manufacturing facilities, but they had serious marketing problems and they were unwilling to change. And I was fairly outspoken, but I was the top performer in those companies. And so we, we just agreed that I didn't fit there. Uh, fire, fire is probably a, a kind word at this stage of the game. And they were big Eastern chemical companies. And to tell you the truth, they had a bias uh, towards public school, uh, publicly educated. Uh, of course, as you know, I'm very, very proud of my Miami connections. Uh, they did me a huge favor because I saw a better way to make acrylic polymers uh, then the giants in the industry, and we went on to become the second, I think we're the second largest in the U.S., third in the world. And then with the ICI uh, purchase of the company, we were the largest acrylic polymer company in the world. I mean, you know, that's not all bad. So let's wind the clock back a little bit more. You know, why did you choose Miami? What brought you to us? And, and tell well, that that's, story. Yeah, that's, that's right. As you know, I grew up on the south side of Chicago. Went to high school in Chicago Heights. I was the first one in my family to get a high school diploma, uh, much less college uh, at Miami and graduate school. But, you know, red-blooded Americans uh, in uh, the 1950s, the Korean War was on. Uh, you know, it was duty, honor, country. Uh, I wanted to, to go into the Navy with my best friend. But I was 17. And my dad wouldn't sign the papers until I, quote, visited a college. Well, there was a small problem with that because I didn't know anybody that went to college. So he found out that my scoutmaster uh, son um, was at a college. And he said, if you go down there and visit it and you don't like it, I'll sign the papers. Now, bear in mind, this is late winter, early spring of 1956, kind of a late time to be applying for anything. 
So he said, I said, where am I going? He said, to Miami. I said, oh, that's great. You know, sunshine, beautiful girls on the beach. This will be terrific. And I found out it was in Ohio. Um, and I came down. I stayed in the Fightaw house. He was a senior. Uh, the guy said, well, well, you can imagine the warm reception and a kid with uh, pegged pants with a pink stripe down the side and a duck's, pardon the expression, ass haircut from the south side of Chicago. But um, it was their uh, winter or spring, I can't remember, dance. And I had a date from Western College. And I probably should stop that part of the interview here and just say that uh, after that weekend, it looked a hell of a lot better to go to a university than spend four years at sea with one of my best friends. So I applied late. Um, and then, frankly, I didn't have the money. So Nate Winsky was president of Idlewild Country Club, Flossmore, Illinois. He had mentored me through the years there. I started in the kitchen as a caddy and became the head doorman, which was the best job I've ever had because it was all cash, you played golf, you drove the members' cars. And uh, so he, he wanted me to stay there as, and become the manager of the club someday. And I said, you know, my parents really want me to go to college. He said, then you'll be leaving us. I said, no, not this year, but next year. He said, why? I said, I don't have the money. So a couple Saturday nights later, when I was getting ready to run down and get his car and bring it up at the club, he put a little envelope in my, we wore little tuxedos. He put an envelope in my pocket and there was 10 $100 bills there. And he said, I never seen a hundred dollar bill. He said, we want you to go now. And I believe for me, um, that moment of great uh, humanity and, and great philanthropy, just think, no tax deduction, uh, no name on, on the building, and years later, in 1981, when my mother died, I went back to the South Side. It was in the winter. I drove up to the club, put fresh prints in the snow, got out, I don't know why, and tried the handle on the front door. I'd been there many times. And the lights went on, scared me half to death. And the accountant was working in the back office, and he said, I know why you're here. I said, you couldn't possibly know why I'm here. I said, I was the head doorman here in the 1950s. He said, son, he said, almost a hundred kids have come through that front door looking for Mr. Winsky. And um, he showed me the beautiful fountain they had built in his memory and it said one word on it. He had been president of the club for 20 or 30 years. It had one word um, on, the, uh, on the plaque. Um, that um, said philanthropist. And uh, I thought from that moment forward that if I was ever lucky enough to make a bunch of money that I would remember those moments and Mr. Winsky. And so talk about your philanthropy, John. And I ask that question because the listeners will know you as, as the name after which the Entrepreneurship Institute is, is named. So I want to hear that story as well. But those who know me know that I spend a lot of time walking around Oxford. I walk the trails and I see your name around Oxford. And I know that you've got a lot of um, work yeah. that you do and support. 
in the Sierra Nevadas where you live. So, so talk to us about your uh, philanthropy and and well, especially especially why why the institute as well. But I'd like to hear more. That was funny because just this morning I opened up the mail and it was the annual report of the personalized endowment report, and I saw that we've been privileged now with the earnings. Of course, that happened. I think the numbers approaching eight million dollars. Um, my philosophy uh, was to leave, to give my children, and now actually my grandchildren and our first great grandchild, the ability to be educated anywhere in the world without cost. Um, medical degree, law degree, undergraduate degree, uh, learn how to fly an airplane, whatever it was. But beyond that, uh, they know that I'm not leaving them much of anything because Kate and I felt on a much smaller scale, obviously, than the Warren Buffetts of the world, um, that we wanted to give 90% of um, what God has blessed us with away uh, in our lifetime. And we're, I think we're on track uh, for that. We've got some big projects uh, coming up at a variety of different places, and including, of course, Miami. So, I guess, Jenny, the, the way I look at it is, um, you know, it, it's my dad uh, had a saying is probably not appropriate for the broadcast, but he talked about money and he was lecturing his son that that if you take money and you leave it in a pile, it looks a little bit like horse manure, but if you spread it out, it makes the flowers grow. And I've never forgotten that. That's a great story. It's a great story. You mentioned in the in the last narrative, your last answer that um, about becoming a, a pilot. So you did rejoin. You did join up to the the navy and and talk about that and also talk it about the first not, the um, and the first conversation you and I ever had. You talked about how you've been a pilot around New Zealand. So we have to have that. Yes, too, John. I, as you know, I flew seaplanes down there for a while. Well, you know, it's it's um. It was a passion I had from when I was a little boy building models um, long before radio control, of course, which made it so much easier. And uh, I got single and multi-engine uh, instrument instructor ratings. And I got the Orville and Wilbur Wright Award from the Federal Aviation Administration. And it was hanging in the garage with a silhouette of Orville and Wilbur in the background, and my grandson said, Grandpa, which one are you? Uh, and I had to laugh. Uh, but, yeah, it was 50 years of flying. Uh, it was a wonderful time, Jenny. I flew all over the world, Australia, New Zealand, owned six or seven airplanes, and um, uh, I miss it. I, I can't pass the physical anymore because of, you know, some heart challenges, but uh, it was a great time of life. Great story. All right. So as the listeners of this podcast know, I do, I am required, John, to ask some questions to take you for a trip down memory lane. And uh, so let, let's, let's switch gears to that. Then I've got certainly many more questions to ask you. So when you look back on your time at Miami, and let's just focus more as a student, which I know is a, you know, a fair number of years back, who was your favorite professor and, and what was your favorite subject? Wow. What a, what a great question that is. Uh, you know, it was before the time of dual majors, but at the end of the day, I really had a dual major, uh, economics and, and, and English, and a minor in classical humanities. 
So when you ask me for a favorite professor, Jenny, I, I would have to tell you there were five or six favorite professors. Um, they were George Thatcher in the economics department, Del Snyder, uh, Gene Kleist, money and banking, then Bill Pratt over in English, Ron Kern um, in speech and theater. Um, I will tell you, I didn't have one single bad professor, uh, frankly, until I got to graduate school, and I'll save that story for another day, but, um, and it wasn't at Harvard. Um, I, you know, Miami's always had a passion for undergraduate teaching. And I was privileged to have really great professors, but I also sought them out. You know, I, I talked to my fraternity brothers and uh, to others and said, you know, I'm, I need to take a course here to check this box. Oh, you got to go with Dr. Montgomery. He, he's teaching classical humanities and take his history of art and architecture course, which I did. So if I had to narrow it down to one, I guess it would be Dr. Pratt, Bill Pratt, Bill Nan Pratt. They're out at the Knowles now. And, uh, you know, he just published a book on Faulkner uh, in his 90s. Uh, so this love for teaching and scholarship, teaching and research that I saw um, with, with my faculty in my Miami years, I, I, you know, I'm still doing the same thing. Uh, I'm still reading. I'm still writing. I'm still speaking. Um, and I couldn't have done it without, without them. And, you know, I, I had a tough start at Miami. I had a 1.64, I think, the first nine weeks. And in those days, you know, your parents got your, got your grades. And I came home and my dad had opened the envelope. And he, I'll never forget this, he handed me a phone number on a little card. And he said, this will solve your problems when you go, uh, when you go back to Miami. And so I didn't think much about it. I think I got back to Oxford and used the change where you put the money in the phone book and I called the number and answered the United States Marine Corps. Yeah. I, there was certainly a message there. I got, I, I got it all together and graduated with a, a gentleman's B. I think it was a, a, a gentleman's B. <laughs> a what, what subject did you least enjoy? What subject to achieve? I I don't think I can pick one. Um, I mean, we all know I couldn't pass calculus, so I guess that's the you answer. You still race it, I know. Yeah, you know. For those who are listening. I hate to confess that. <laughs> yeah. right. But this, for those who are listening, if there are current, current students listening, I just want you to know that calculus has haunted many of our alumni for decades. <laughs> I'm not sure I feel any better than it. Was it a three-hour course now, I hope? Five. Oh, dear God, that's ridiculous. But I'll save that for another day. What co-curricular activities were you involved in? Not many. Um, I just didn't have the time. Uh, I did a little bit of theater work, played Abraham Lincoln in Abe Lincoln in Illinois for Dr. Kern. I was a lot skinnier in those days, uh, a part in our town. Um, and um, I... Jenny, I, I uh, participated in all the fraternity activities, and I'm not sure the statute of limitations run out in that, so I'm not going to talk much about those days, the Delft House. Um, but I worked 
all the time. Uh, I started uh, a business my, I think my junior year. Um, it was basically a sales representative um, job uh, with the Zimmer Paper Company down in Hamilton, Ohio. So between working, I had a car, which no one else had uh, my junior and senior year, uh, which I, I needed for my job. So I participated. I don't want to sound like I never did anything. I, I don't think I ever missed one of our uh, performances. You know, I remember Satchmo coming to the, to the campus. Uh, I uh, made the football games, the home games for the most part. Uh, but beyond that, I just didn't have the time. What what car did you? What was your first car then, John? What did you drive? Let's see. It was a nineteen forty six, a forty seven Plymouth. Oh yeah. And in those days, we had a very vibrant program of auto mechanics, if you can believe it, at Miami, and they overhauled the engine in that car when I broke down. I used to haul kids back and forth to Chicago for obviously a price, but it broke down and they overhauled it. And I think the bill was $27 for the parts. And it took them half a semester to do it. But I always said that some of the best football players in the Mid-American Conference ground the valves on my old Plymouth. That's great. So when you went to class, did you prefer morning or afternoon classes? Are you, are you a morning person or no? Um, I'm not a morning person, but I took all the, the classes throughout the day. We went to school six days a week in those days, believe it or not. Um, our labs were, you know, I, I, I started out thinking I might be a pre-med major, but I, I just didn't have the, uh, I, I just didn't have the skill set for them. that. So I took zoology, five-hour course, and really enjoyed it. Um, Dr. Hefner, whose name's on our museum over there, great teacher. Um, is, you know, kids are different today. I, I saw when the classes were offered and who the good professors were, and I didn't pay much attention to the time. But we went six days a week because the labs were on Saturdays. I mean, how things have changed. You know, it's, I, I, don't, I don't see how you, you know, this going to school on Tuesday and Thursday, and that's it. I, I don't get it. But anyway. Moving on. <laughs> Moving on. That's right. So, John, I know you 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 were on campus at, at, um, not only as a as a student, but also as a faculty member, and you come and go a little bit. So, talk to me about what's your favorite building on campus? Oh, it's Upham Hall. Okay, uh, good. Yeah, the Arch in Upham Hall. Uh, George Hoxie, the great photographer from Oxford, now long gone. I have some pictures of of those days uh, in that building. Um, you know, in those days, I can't remember where economics was taught, the buildings. It obviously wasn't in the farmer school or even in Laws Hall, as I remember. I, I seen the, the campus was so much smaller uh, that Upham Hall was where a lot of instruction was. And also in Harrison Hall, the original Harrison Hall, back, back from the early days of Miami, which has now been replaced by a more modern building. So those two would have been my favorite. Of course, Harrison named after Benjamin Harrison, who was president yeah. of the United States. So what was your favorite place or what is your favorite place uptown when you when you <laughs> still is Mac and Joe's. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, Todd, Todd Todd's gone now. Mm. Uh, 
But in those days, Jenny, we had fraternity mugs and um, they would fill them with 3.2 beer for 15 cents. A glass of beer was 10 cents. And I've always been saddened that we didn't keep the 18-year-old 3.2 beer rule in. Um, you generally got bloated and, and or got sick if you drank too much 3.2 beer. But uh, the hard alcohol scenario has led to a lot of complications for the institution, as we both know. So, yeah. so, so switching gears just a little bit, you know, you, you, I'd like to talk about your relationship with Dick Farmer and, and, you know, obviously in a very important person for us, the Farmer School is named after a generous gift that he, he and his family made. But talk to me about Dick. Of course, when you talk to Roger Howe, uh, who was Dick's best friend, I think, I think you'll, you'll, you'll get even better answers. For me, um, for me, I, I, I miss Dick greatly, or, or um, he, he was the quintessential entrepreneur that all of us followed. And when he was a member of Delta Ta Delta, he was just an outstanding leader back then. You know, you, you, you could identify, looking back on it, Farmer, Armstrong, Howe, we're all the same generation. Dick was a little bit ahead of us, um, but he had all the skill sets. Plus, he was a good-looking guy, and he was athletic. And of course, he went in the Marine Corps, and uh, he visited the house one time in that uniform. Uh, and then, of course, uh, he enjoys sort of Miami merger, as you know. Um, I think Dick taught us a great deal about um, how to run a business and grow a business and take care of people. Uh, I certainly modeled uh, my startups uh, the way Dick did it. Uh, if you read the, the book on Sintas, uh, or you read the book that Dick wrote, um, you, you see a man who was well-balanced. You see a man uh, who always ran, had a, uh, an ethical and moral compass, and you see a man who gave back. And I don't think it gets much better than that, to tell you the truth. Like yeah. That. So, so I want to come back to some of your involvement now with the university, and I want to start with the humanities centre. So, you know, the, the listeners may not be aware of this, especially a business school student may not be aware of all that you're doing to support the humanities. So, talk well, to us about I, that and guess, why. Yeah, I, I guess I just talked about you know the way Dick went about life. Um, our original gift uh, was the humanities. Once again, calculus played a role, so to speak. Um, and uh, I think the humanities is a very, very important part of a university education. Uh, I'm saddened by um, the, the drift away from their, their core uh, courses and principles that has occurred in recent years. But yeah, that was our first major uh, gift to Miami. Um, thank God they've got Tim Melly over there running it now. And as you know, the provost has an initiative to make the humanities more relevant. Uh, interestingly enough, I always thought that entrepreneurship was the arts and science of business. And initially, when, when Jim hired me, I said, you sure you want to start this in the business school? And he said, well, we got to place you in a department. He said, can you think of a department over in arts and science that would welcome you? And since we... Neither of us could identify one at that moment in time. Uh, I ended up 
in the, in the business school. Um, we're going to continue to support the humanities if, if they can come through this study and be more relevant, um, and be more market focused. Um, I see no reason not to continue supporting uh, both the farmer school and the humanities. And switching gears to the farmer school and, and the Altman uh, Institute for Entrepreneurship, you must be so proud of the fact that we're at number seven in the world and we've achieved that status. So, so of, talk, of, of course. Um, so talk, talk to me about, about what excites you about what the Institute's doing and what, what you see in its future. Well, um, I'll try to step back and look at it from the perspective of a lot of years from when I conceptualized uh, in 1992 the way I felt the institution should go with entrepreneurship and the way I should go with it. Those that came after me, um, Jay Kane, Brett Smith, and, uh, and um, so on and so forth, um, and Tim of, uh, now, um, they had a much wider view of entrepreneurship than I had. If you look at where we are today, Obviously, it's wonderful to have the rankings that they have. However, um, corporate entrepreneurship, life, social entrepreneurship, a lot of those things were frankly hard for, for people like Rick Forsyth and I to get our, our, our hands around. And so what I worry about with all the accolades they, they've justly deserved is are they focused enough now on what I consider to be uh, the dual core principles of entrepreneurship? On the one side, creating opportunity in startups. On the other side, bringing an entrepreneurship mentality and culture for every student to go anywhere. That, that's a dichotomy that's very, very hard uh, to manage. So I, I'm hopeful as we move forward that strategically we'll begin to think of it in those terms. But yeah, it's it's wonderful to have our name. Well, as, as, as the Dean of the Farmer School, one of our visions, and, and you know, Tim shares this with me, is to ensure that all students understand what an entrepreneurial mindset is and that they're trained in that way to be comfortable with yep. the, uh, to be comfortable with what's not clear and, and ambiguous. And I yep. think it's a huge skill. And I think that's, that, that's a great vision to have. Yeah. I think where Rick, uh, Forsyth and, and Dick Farmer and I and Roger Howe and others, um, we're more we're we are still today more focused on the startup, creating opportunity and, and doing startups, and 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 frankly, those startups are not venture capital based. I mean, venture capital is less than a half of one percent of startups and less than four percent in dollars, and so I'm hoping that. We keep those things in mind as we move forward. No, no, and that's good, and 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 you know because you're you're well informed about what the institute's doing. But there's some incredible work to, being done around startups. But I hear what you're saying. We've got some good case studies. So we're down to the last two questions, John. We've done surprise. I, I thought, how on earth am I going to squeeze decades of experience? Um, into into a half hour podcast, but I think we should pat ourselves on the back here. But I've got my last two questions for you, John. Firstly, what other advice would you give students who are listening to this podcast? And then I'll I'll, I'll move it into recent hires, people who have just started their career. Well, first of all, 
I asked myself two questions um, at the end of every, every day in my working career. Did I learn something today? Did I have fun today? If one of those answers was no, I updated my resume. If both answers were no, I moved on. Sometimes they moved me on, as we've already talked about. But, you know, life is, um, life is short. And at 85, you look back on the blessings that you've had. And I can honestly say that every single day, from including my time in the military, I learned something that day and there, there was some fun along the way. And that has never changed. So my advice is put those two boxes on a piece of paper and uh, you have to check one, get your resume updated. You check both, quit before you get fired. <laughs> and the second question is, imagine a student's listening and, and they wind the clock forward. They've just started a job. They're one or two years in. What advice would you give that person? I'm, uh, you're going to have to clarify that question a little bit for me. So it's really advice for someone early in their career, you know, the first one or two years into their first job. Well, first of all, you start with, are you learning something and did you have fun today? But um, I think what you have to look at is that first job, you know, you're taking what's offered, right? You're not out searching specifically for what you want. So I would say after a couple of years, in my case, I waited way too long. I was... Uh, at Roman House for seven and a half uh, years. And I passed up two or three really great opportunities from customers of mine that were starting new businesses. Um, when, when you get to the point where you've outgrown the job and the organization you work for has not recognized that and or rewarded it, it it's time to look afield. And the big thing I think that our young people get trapped in, they think because they're in finance or because they're in marketing, that their world is greatly narrowed. And I never looked at it that way. I mean, I never looked back on my degree and said, okay, I've got to be an economist. I got to go to graduate school, get a PhD in economics. No, that never crossed my mind. I, I looked far afield each time. Um, and part of it, I think, is a, perhaps a short attention span. I get bored easily even today. Um, is I was actively searching very different places to use my skill set. And that broadens your experience. It makes your contribution much higher logarithmically. And you're going to have a lot more fun. But you've got to take those risks. You know, uh, a good example is uh, my, my new friend, Stu Frankel. I've uh, been very involved in the entrepreneurship program. His father was in my class. I knew him. Stu, Stu writes magnificently, and he's a very accomplished businessman. He was an accountant. He majored in accounting. So I rest my case that whatever your degree is in, don't let that limit you or describe you. I love that. And, and and life is such a journey and, and it's hard to see what's coming. But to your point, if you're learning things, if you're putting yourself forward to learn things and you're having fun along the way, I mean, what great advice. 
So thank you so much, John, for the gift of your time to allow me to record this podcast. I always enjoy talking to you, John. We always have a a, a, a good conversation. <laughs> but one defining characteristic of the, of the Pharma School of Business is just how engaged our alumni are and how willing they are to continue to find ways to support the school, its students, our faculty and staff, and other alumni. So thank you, John, and go well as you continue in your journey beyond High Street. Love and honor.